0: This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller.
1: We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation.
0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming along to the More to the Story podcast. I'm Andy Miller, and I come to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary in the Jackson, Mississippi area, where I serve as a vice president for academic affairs and professor of theology. Now, look, today's podcast. Is something that I've been really excited to share with my friends. And people who are in my office area heard me getting excited as I was doing this interview with Katie Faust, who is the founder of an organization. And I love this organization. In part, because it has a great name, the name encapsulates the ideas they're trying to promote, and the name is "them before us." And I'm tempted to kind of give it away right now what's involved, but this is an entirely new approach to what has sometimes just been called family values. And and, and nobody will be surprised who's listening to this podcast for a while that as we come towards contemporary issues from a orthodox Wesleyan perspective that often we're sharing things that have been identified in the past with family values. Maybe things like that, folks in the family would have supported. And I mean, not categorically, but generally those type of things are true. But those of you who've been involved in those sort of organizations, and certainly I've benefited from them personally, academically, and, and just even being reared in broad evangelicalism, I think that there is a unique slant that Katie brings that's going to be helpful to you. So I'm excited that you'll be able to share this interview. And I hope that you'll share it and share it with other people as well. We really could use people to take a minute just to, to like, to review our podcast, um, to share, to subscribe to us on YouTube. That helps us get more accessible, be more accessible to people. And it just helps people find us too. Now, one thing some people have asked about is like, this podcast had a former life, and it had a former life in when, when my title was not Dr. Andy Miller, but Captain Andy Miller, and my podcast was called Captain's Corner. I love that podcast. It had more than 50 episodes, great interviews from people like Tony and Lauren Dungy, Horst Schultz, um, Wesleyan scholars, presidents, um, Salvation Army leaders, corporate leaders. There's just a lot of great content that I enjoyed putting together for two and a half years. Well, I'm excited to say that those 50 plus episodes are available now at andymillerthird.com. And there's a separate channel for those archives on all of the podcast networks. So, so, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and those type of things. And you can find this all on our Transistor page, which links you to all of those. So I just wanted you to know those are all available. So if you're new to the podcast, which we have a lot of new people coming to the More to Story podcast, thank you for checking this out. You can go check out, if you're interested, 50 other interviews. The thing we're doing differently now, and you'll see more of this coming soon, is contents that's not just interview-based, but instead it's material that we're preparing kind of for your spiritual benefit, also just teaching, basic teaching on themes in Christian theology and things that I'm working on in my own scholarly endeavors. So I'm excited for you to be able to participate in some of that. So thanks for coming along for that. We wouldn't be able to do this if we didn't have some awesome sponsors who came alongside of us to help us pay for some of the expenses that are involved in this podcast. And one of those, the first one that came along was WPO Development. And their CEO, Keith Waters, says, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And so what Keith and his team have done across the country, more than 250 times, they've successfully led people to complete capital campaigns. So that's come as they've developed mission planning studies, strategic plans, and then actually led people through a fundraising effort in a capital campaign. And I can testify that because I've been a part of Keith's work, Keith's been, I mean, Keith's really come alongside of me when I served as a Salvage Army officer. So I recommend him to you. You can find him at Keith.Waters at WPODevelopment.com. And you can just Google WPO Development and you, you can find them. Secondly, uh, William Roberts or Bill Roberts is a financial planner who does a great job coming alongside of people, helping them develop financial plans and then realize those plans. And what he does that's so unique is he has kind of cultivated a way of working with people who serve in ministry, people who have to deal with complicated things like parsonages and quarters. And he's also uniquely gifted at helping people uh, who serve in the Salvation Army as employees or officers. So you can check him out at williamhroberts.com. I hope that you'll find him to be helpful as you try to achieve your financial goals in a Christian way. Well, here we come. We're ready to get on today's podcast with Katie Faust. God bless you. Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am delighted, excited to have on the podcast with me the founder of Them Before Us, Miss Katie Faust. Katie, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I've had a chance to listen to some of your other
1: episodes. I'd encourage your readers to your listeners to go back and um, check them out as well because you're doing some really good work here. So it's an honor to. Uh, be on the platform.
0: Thank you. And if I said miss, it's Mrs., right? Please Mrs. please excuse me. Um,
1: it's Mrs. Like that Mr., I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be able to do so much of what I'm able to do without the Mr., um, yes. you know. Well, you know, we can talk about all oh. kinds of things, but um, my husband's a pastor. Is he? Um, yeah. So we are, um, we're deep into church life. Um, you know, he's deep into theology. Um, we are deep into community. Um, and we... Uh, you know, I, I'm, we are, this is my, maybe we don't want to go here, but you know, we're complementarians, yeah, yeah. like we really believe in headship in the church and headship in the home. And it's so funny when I run across people that are like, oh, well, that just means that you're a barefoot pregnant doormat for your husband. And I'm like, uh, girl, I'm traveling the world. Yeah. Okay. I am all over this place. I'm raising four kids, Amen. right? I'm like deep in community. I am like the most empowered woman that you will ever. Right. And it is because of complementarianism. It is because my husband has seen himself as the leader, the one that is going to protect and provide, right? The one that's shouldering the load and the responsibility for our family. So I've been able to just like really live within my gifting. So anyway,
0: there is a mister and he deserves lots of attention. Amen. And I I, I would say like, it's interesting. You, uh, if people Google you or YouTube you, they wouldn't necessarily pick up on that because your arguments and what you're trying to do, and we'll get into it in a second, isn't necessarily something that is going toward uh like just making conservatives feel good about themselves like you're you're going for the heart of the beast like you're going right in it and um and and even the fact that there is a mr and a mrs is an important piece of your argument um but i need to tell them what you're arguing for briefly if i so them before us is this organization that you're the founder of and it also you have a book that's just come out um, with the same title. And I, I only take my, my little journey with this idea in general came as a pastor, serving for a pastor for 15 years. Um, I, I worked as hard as I could on arguments, particularly as we got to a Obergefell in 2012 and trying to figure out like what same-sex marriage could mean, how does this work? And then I got to the place, um, interesting, where I heard a lecture by Robert George, and then I heard a lecture by Ryan T. Anderson. And both people all of a sudden turned my perspective on what this means for society and their argument had to do with children. And then what I think you've, and then Robert George writes a forward for your book, um, who's a you know professor at Princeton, um, well-respected natural law component. And, and this, this is like something that has benefited me greatly. But then I found out about you and your work to take that same message into a, a public audience and move it forward. So tell, if I've missed it, maybe let me, let me know, like, what is them before us? And what are you trying to do?
1: Yeah, you've really set the stage well because these arguments have been alive um, in the philosophical and academic realm for a long time, but for the most part have been pretty inaccessible yeah. to the layperson, to the ordinary reader, um, and they're they are airtight. I mean, this, this argument, so what we're doing at Them Before Us is we are arguing for the rights of children. Okay. We are arguing for children's rights in the family. Now, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with a child's right to life, right? And that's a natural right. We believe in that right, even if the law doesn't recognize a child right to life. Well, children also have rights on this side of the womb too, right? And their primary right after their right to life is their right to be known and loved by both mother and father. So this is something that has been um, asserted by natural lawyers for a long time of which certainly Robert George and Ryan Anderson um, are, you know, part of that, um, that tradition. But um, what we're trying to do is we are trying to put faces on that argument, right? And so one of the main things we do at Them Before Us is we tell the stories of kids, right? We tell the stories of kids primarily of kids who have lost a relationship with their mother or father. And then we make arguments about how public policy should align with children's natural right to be known and loved by their mom and dad. Um, And that implicates a lot of people, right? It's not, yes, certainly, We got a lot of attention. We started to focus on this question because of gay marriage, but the implications, the disintegration of these rights began long before gay marriage, and they are continuing after gay marriage. Um, And what does it mean, you know, overall? Well, I was doing a panel at the Heritage Foundation a couple of years ago, and um, I said children's rights um, makes claims, makes demands, because children have a claim to their mother and father, children's rights, this argument makes demands of all adults, single, married, gay, and straight. In the world of children's rights, no adult gets a pass. Every adult must respect the rights of children. That means at some point in our life, every adult has to do hard things to protect the rights of children in our life. And I I said, you know, somebody said, well, gosh, you know, some of what you're saying is kind of offensive to some groups. And I said, oh, give me some time. I'll say something offensive to every adult
0: group. Yes. Hey. Right? This
1: is <laughs> this is an indiscriminate message in terms of who it will infringe on when it comes to adults and what they want. In this world of children's rights, all adults bend so that children's rights are protected.
0: And the problem you suggest is an adult-centric approach that's come, mm-hmm. come out. And this is why your argument isn't just about gay marriage. It's not just about um, any of the LGBTQ agenda. Instead, th- this is also connected to divorce. I mean, what did you say? You said it came out before. Do you think it starts? I mean, it probably starts before, this, but even no-fault divorce?
1: Yes. So um, when people like, you know, I'll say, look, gays and lesbians are not responsible for the abysmal state of the US family right now. Hello. Okay? <laughs> Yeah. So, right, in terms of a legal sense, the first redefinition of marriage was no-fault divorce, the right. passage of no-fault divorce that began in the late 60s, ramped up, spread all across the country in the 70s and 80s, hit epidemic levels in the early 90s, right? Like, that was the first legal redefinition of marriage, where we have these um, norms of marriage, one of which was permanence, that this was going to be a lifelong relationship, and no-fault divorce, in essence, said, it's not lifelong, Right? In essence, no fault divorce was the first time that we said marriage is not an institution centered around the well being of children, which is historically how it's been. Um, it's been a vehicle of children's rights children thriving because it's the only institution that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right that's why it's been the most child friendly institution the world has ever known now wow. no fault divorce said no marriage is really just about your fulfillment and your happiness and so if you cease to be happy the marriage can cease to exist and so you take that framework of well if marriage is just exists to make me happy well then what if what makes me happy is marrying another man or marrying another woman? And then you go, well, then yeah, if marriage is just about adult happiness, then marriage should be able to be whatever adults want it to be. Mm-hmm. And we really did codify that mm-hmm. when the US passed, uh, when a Obergefell was legalized by the Supreme Court, um, in essence, making it the law of the land all across the country. And now we have no way of shutting down any other kinds, any other forms of marriage because we have such as polygamy, right? Yeah. Polygamy is next right. on the horizon. It's coming, yeah. Yeah, it, it's here, right? Like- It's not just
0: coming, it's here.
1: It's here, right? Like We already have one town in Massachusetts that has legalized polygamy because, And
0: polyamory, right?
1: And polyamory, yeah. that's actually one the more the accurate three. term It's okay. polyamory, just group marriage, right? Because sure. they said, look, we don't have any legal recourse. We don't have any, there's no more legal arguments we can make to bar the relationship of more than two people. Because the only reason there was two is because there was one of each, man and woman, right? Mm-hmm. But now that we've said that this is really just a vehicle of adult fulfillment, well, sometimes seven adults fulfill an adult's desire. Right,
0: right. right?
1: So, yeah, like we are in a mess. We're in a mess. And um, uh, and ultimately, it's children who are going to suffer.
0: And this is why uh, this kind of basis of, of your happiness, a consumeristic approach towards sex, a consumeristic approach towards marriage. Uh, Anthony Kennedy, Justice Anthony Kennedy, would say that the problem with um, the a Obergefell decision was why he overruled it is dignity harm right. This is something that is getting away of you finding your own fulfillment in yourself. So that's incredibly problematic. I wanted to go back to just the piece like of why this matters and what you've helped me with, and I truly appreciate it. Uh, like intellectually helping me develop arguments for this and the others that I mentioned is that. What? what ends up, the reason society even acknowledges marriage, and that's key—that I'm saying acknowledges marriage, like, mm-hmm. is that it creates something for the society as a whole. This isn't about personal fulfillment. This isn't about theology or biblical studies, which is often where I'm dealing with it. Instead, like this is creating an environment where children thrive and then become participants in society. Now, one of the arguments that would come up, though, is like, well, I know some people who have uh, grown up in a same-sex relationship, around a, a children of a same-sex relationship, and they're doing fine. And Andy, after all, you've worked in the Salvation Army. You've worked with kids who are homeless, uh, people who are homeless. When should rather than be in a home, uh, be safe than to, you know, uh, or, or would, you rather, would you rather be homeless than to be in the home of a same sex marriage? I mean, wh- how do you respond to that?
1: Good. Okay. So I hear three different things. I know. I asked right too much. So let's, talk too much. No, that, no, that's great. Cause I want to do all of them and we will. Okay. Okay. So first let's talk about children's rights to their mother and father, just so everybody understands, right? This is a natural right. Um, it is similar. We make the case in chapter one of our book on why this is Almost exactly we can understand it in the same way that we understand children's natural right to life, right? In fact, they're two sides of the same natural law coin, right? Also, this goes hand in hand with parental rights, just like the adults care which child they leave the hospital with, right? Because there's something special about that biological connection. Children also care what parents they go home with from the hospital, right? Hmm. Children also care about which adults are raising them. Um, And then when we want to zoom out and look at it from a sociological perspective, why is it that these two adults um, have such power in the life of kids, right? So when we look at populations that are suffering in the United States when it comes to kids, whether kids living in poverty, kids that are um, at risk of suicide, dropping out of school, at risk for teen pregnancy, at risk for criminality, at risk for behavioral disorders, at risk for living um, on the street homeless. All of those populations have something in common, and that is that they're disproportionately fatherless.
0: Absolutely.
1: So if we can protect a child's right to their mother and father, You will decimate, and I use that term precisely because you will wipe down to a tenth a lot of the time the the issues that we're suffering with today. Like, we do not have to spin our wheels and figure out how to spend money to fix child poverty, get kids off the street. You can do one thing, defend children's rights, and you can wipe out nearly every social issue that we are facing today, and that is why children's rights is a social justice issue. Now, marriage is the most time-tested, Solution that any government, any religion, any culture has ever found to protect children's rights to their mother and father, right? So marriage is that critical social justice issue for kids that gives them both, that stacks the deck in their favor, that sets them up for success. Mm. So why is it that this natural right to a child's mother and father is so powerful? For three reasons. Number one, it gifts kids with statistically the safest, most connected to most protective of them adults in their life. Yeah. Okay. And all of us know heroic step parents who are filling the void for a negligent biological parent. Those adults exist. They deserve praise. They deserve affirmation. But statistically, right. the addition of a stepfather does not improve outcomes for a child. Those kids fare about as well as a kid raised by a single mom. Wow. In addition. Just so statistically. Another,
0: you're not, you're not judging
1: anybody. You're just saying this so is,
0: yeah. Okay.
1: Keep going. That's true. Those are the numbers, right? And it's kind of a facts don't care about your feelings kind of thing. <laughs> We've been studying this for decades. You're, you're not going up against me, you're going up against some of the best, truthfully evolutionary biologists that are out there, okay? And speaking of evolutionary biologists, um, the other importance about biological connection is an unrelated cohabiting man in a child's life, especially mother's boyfriend or mother's new husband is statistically, statistically, the most dangerous person in a child's life, okay? An unrelated cohabiting adult, even a woman, will increase the likelihood of accidents or neglect or abuse. And this is called the Cinderella effect. Very well established in the sociological literature. Feel free to fact check me. Um, In fact, do a quick, you can just pause this podcast right now and fact check me in this minute. Google the words, mother's boyfriend, Oh, okay, just pause this podcast. Google the words "mother's boyfriend" and come back when you're done.
0: Yeah, I'll wait. <laughs> the, I, oh.
1: Okay, so now now you're back.
0: Okay, and
1: what, you saw, what you saw was pages and pages of the most horrific, graphic um, abuse and filicide—that is, child death at the hands of mother's boyfriend—because it takes more than being in a romantic relationship with somebody's parent to treat the child as a parent, okay? So the first thing that this natural right does is it gives kids the most protective adults in their life, statistically. Number two, it gives them something that no other adults can give them, and that's biological identity, okay? Now I'm laying all this out because I wanna get to your same-sex parenting question, Um, but but biological identity is something that really matters to kids. Every kid in adolescence, their big question they're asking is, who am I? And a lot of those answers from kids come from, well, I come from my mother or come out from my father or we're Italian or I'm the daughter of my grandmother. You know, before before you and I started this podcast, I held up the Bible of my great grandfather, who was a Methodist missionary in China. And I still look at that and I go, That's part of my heritage. Like that that I'm connected. Yeah. I'm con- yeah, that's a part of me, right? And so biology does play a role in our identity formation. And the people who tell us that the loudest are the ones who were raised without it. So adoptees, right? Adoptees scout adoptees, we all know somebody who was adopted, oftentimes by amazing heterosexual loving mothers and fathers who then when they're 20 go, who's my who's my birth mother? What happened there? I want to go find out. And now we have Decades of children created through sperm and egg donation who are scouring the internet trying to find their biological parents or maybe their 50 biological half siblings. So this identity, right, this biological identity matters for kids and they can only get it from two adults, Mm. their mom and their dad, their biological mom and dad. And finally, the third reason why this natural child right matters so much is because it gives children the perfect gender balance in their home 100% of the time, right? Sociologists have been studying family structure for decades. It is obvious that men and women offer distinct and complementary benefits to children. Men talk different, play different, discipline differently, um, orient their child to the world differently. You know, moms tend to focus more on the immediate emotional well being, fairness. Fine motor skills. Dads push their kids to be adventurous risk takers. They do gross motor skill development with their kids. Um, And having both halves of humanity in your home maximizes child development. So that is why even left leaning scholars, right? Even left leaning sources like Child Trends would say if you want the best chance at your child thriving, it is going to be the home raised, uh, a child raised by their married. Biological parents, mm-hmm. okay. Like it is this power of biology, power of the biological parents, um, that gives something to kids that no other household arrangement is going to offer them.
0: So you, one thing you say too, and I, I know you're getting, you're just about to get to answer my question, which uh, I, I will sit you on a long goose chase, but I love the chase. So one thing I, you, you say though in your book is that's helpful to me is there's no such thing almost of um of parenting. There's yeah. mothering and fathering.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Like um, men don't mother. Women don't father. Kids need both. Right. There's no way. um, You know, one of the things that I do is I work with um, one of the things I do that we don't that really nobody else does is we gather the stories of kids who have lost their mother or father. And we kind of break that up into three categories. Children of divorce and abandonment children created through reproductive technologies and children with LGBT parents. And of those kids with LGBT parents, um, many of them were raised by, for example, a lesbian couple where one was more feminine and one was what they would call butch, right? I had a butch mom and I had a more feminine mom. And um, the butch mom dressed more masculine and um, worked on cars and um, liked sports and things like that. I have yet to hear one of those kids say, yeah, that butch mom totally satisfied my desire for a father. Wow. It didn't, right? Because it takes more than a haircut to interact with a child the way a man would interact with a child. We are wired down to our brains, down to our physical bodies differently. And that expresses itself in critical ways in the parent-child relationship. So mothering is not a switch that a guy can flip on. There have been studies that show that um, when it's a single dad or two dads, it's very important to try to um, replicate the bonding instinct, the nurturing instinct that mothers have for babies that dads don't have in the same way. So literally, they've encouraged men to um, shoot oxytocin up their nose to try to make them a little more nurturing the way mothers are. Mothers and fathers are different and kids need both.
0: Right, and this is a part. This is why this is kind of a natural law argument. This is a, a pre-political idea. This comes from the like the basic structure of the complementary nature of like how God has designed the universe. And the thing is, like you, you notice here too, even though Katie started by talking about like uh, the her own relationship with her husband and the, the way that that works in a complimentary way, her arguments are not like just like a biblical and theological. Of course, you're going to find great backup for that there. And, and, and hearing you say this too, I learned this through another podcast. I had heard of you earlier through your well-known blog, our uh, not blog. Well, yeah, it's blog and YouTube, uh, ask a bigot, mm-hmm. right? That was, I, I, so that came, it came around somewhere around or burger um, So it, And I learned about your your own personal story, like your connection to this world, particularly with LGBT um, uh, arrangements. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, I never, like, I was thinking about this, man. 10 years ago, I was, um, 10 years ago I was preparing to adopt our son. Okay. Um, No, we had just gotten home, right? We had been home about three months with our newly adopted son. I was just in the throes of adoption, adjusting to his special needs trying to balance mothering involved in a new church. Like I wasn't doing any of this, like children's rights, like activism, nothing like that. But when we first started to debate gay marriage, what I heard the other side saying is the only reason you possibly could support traditional marriage is bigotry. You just hate gay people. That's all it is. And I just like, that broke me, you know, because my mom has been in a relationship with her partner for about 35 years. Wow. I've been connected with them and loved them. And after my parents divorced, I split time between their home and the home of my father. And I kind of grew up in this lesbian world in a lot of ways. And so hatred and phobia had literally zero (laughs) to do with my position. Rather, this advocacy for children's rights to their mother and father and the importance of marriage uniting those two adults came from a couple decades of working with kids and watching their their lives be shattered mm. and watching them grieve and mourn when their mother or father was gone. I mean, like you you've got some Salvation Army people in your audience. They're working with kids too. When those kids talk about their greatest heartache, what is it? Yeah. It's probably why did my dad leave? Yeah. Like, do you think he thinks about me? He said he would call last weekend and I didn't go anywhere because I was just waiting and he never did. Wow. Right? Yeah. You've had those conversations. Yeah. So have I, right? You've heard the kid go, you know, I guess my mom loves drugs more than she loves me. So there must be something wrong with me. Mm. So this is one of the most painful things that kids, especially teens experience. I still talk to people who are in their forties, grown men with successful careers, who can't talk about their father absence without losing it on the phone, wow. right? This goes down. It is what we call at them before us, a primal wound, a wound that goes down to your primary needs and oftentimes something you never get over. And so when I heard the other side, you know, dismissing the importance of mothers and fathers first, and then saying, well, you're a bigot. If you even think that mo- kids should have moms and dads, that is what kind of moved me in the direction of, pardon me. You know what? F you. That's that's kind of like what happened, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, you're saying that only bigotry well bring it you know i guess the only way to not be a bigot is to agree with all of your political conclusions so i guess that makes me a bigot right even though i love my gay family and friends even though like i have well-reasoned secular arguments for my position so it began as a blog anonymous because i'm a complete chicken (laughs) and i know i know what these people do to your life and your family if you speak up yeah um so i just started writing about it and then um was outed by a very loving and tolerant gay blogger who doxxed members of my church to get me to shut up. And then I was, you know, out writing under my own name, which um it was very much a uh, what the enemy e- means for evil kind of situation because now it's like, you know, I am leaving in 30 minutes to go speak at the Value Voter Summit, you know, in DC. Uh, Amen. And I, I never would have been doing that if I had been, you know, behind my keyboard blogging anonymously. So anyway, um That's yeah, it's great. there's there's been twists and turns.
0: I love it. I mean, it's amazing how God has led you to this place to be in this position and to do it in the uh, the public discourse, in the public square. And you're, you're, uh, like I, I enjoy the argument. Now, back to my, my question. Um, so this—I mean, I've, I've been confronted with this argument, working in, in homeless services and doing it in Jesus' name. Isn't it better to get people— uh, homeless kids into a home where they have people financially providing for them. So what if they happen to be a gay couple or a lesbian couple or a trans couple, whatever, whatever is involved, um, than them being in the, on the street.
1: Mm, such a good question. Um, and I'll phrase it um, another common way. Oh, so you're saying you'd rather have a kid languishing in an overseas orphanage than adopted by two loving women. Right?
0: Yeah, sure. Something so like
1: that. That's the one, you know, that's kind of the flip side. So let's talk about that. So the first thing that we need to talk about is adoption. What? is adoption okay adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents adoption is not a way for adults to get kids Hmm. and so a lot of the times we have this concept in our mind that like oh well you can't adopt or you want to add to your family well i'm sorry you can't have kids of your own you're infertile well you should adopt
0: right consumeristic
1: Sometimes that's the case, but primarily adoption does not exist to get kids to adults. Mm. Adoption exists to give children parents who have lost them. In adoption, the adults are not the client. The child is the client. Okay. Mm. In adoption, if adoption is done well, every child who needs a family will be placed in a loving home, but not every adult who wants them will get a kid. Okay. Okay. So that's the most important thing. So if this is a child-centric enterprise, which it should be, institution, I should say, then we need to serve the child. We need to evaluate the homes that will best give the child what they need. So that means adoption agencies, and I used to work at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. So this is not a theoretical question for me, right? We looked at these factors, we evaluated, especially single parent placements. um, And we said, okay, what is the best placement for this child in need? And that calculation has a lot of factors. One of them is, are you able to handle this child's special need, right? Can you take a sibling group so that the siblings can stay together? Do you have some kind of biological connection with the child so the child can retain their kinship bonds, for example? Um, But one of those calculations is, is it a home where the child will receive both the maternal and paternal love that they crave and that maximizes child development? So, in our calculus, pl- prioritizing homes where there is a married mother and father should be a huge part of that calculation when you're talking about a placing agency, right? Because that is what's going to be in the best interest of the child whenever possible. Okay. Right. So People will say, well, do, don't you think that LGBT people have a right to adopt? And I'm like, no, <laughs> people, no adult has a right to adopt. Hey, there you go. Okay? Yeah, that's- Every child has a right to be adopted, right? But my husband and I, we don't have a, just because we saw this beautiful boy's picture, that doesn't mean that he should, he should just be handed to us. We had to go through months justifiably, screening, vetting, background checks, criminal histories, Physical exams, references, the social worker came and like watched us parent our kids, interviewed our kids. And that's how it's supposed to be, right? It's not about us getting a kid. It's, is that kid going to get what they need in our home?
0: Mm. Okay,
1: so that's adoption. First, it is not about the adults, it's about the kids. Now, when you are talking about white drug-free infants, okay, in this country, there is a long line of adults who are willing to take those kids on, right? Because it's fairly low cost, when you are talking about foster kids here in the United States or special needs kids that are living overseas, unfortunately, that number dwindles quite a bit in terms of even Christian heterosexual couples that are willing to do the hard work of bringing that child into their home. And as a woman who has an adopted child with special needs, who lived in an institution for a couple of years, those challenges are not minimal, right? Right and same with my friends who are fostering and fostered adopt right you are this is not child needs parents parents come in ding, problem solved right Right. this is lifelong shepherding of that child through their primal wound okay um now in those harder cases in the united states and overseas sometimes you're not going to find that married mother father home right that's financially able and and understands the special needs and in that case the adoption agency should make the best placement. Sometimes that might be the home of a same sex couple. Okay. But that is a lot, that is much farther away from saying, moms and dads don't matter. You know, gays have a right to adopt. Um, marriage has no impact and no um, right. can't inform this conversation on marriage and family at all. What we're saying is that there are situations, exceptions to be honest, where sometimes the best placement for a child would be a same sex couple. and. This is such a theoretical question. I'm, right. I'm probably right. like literally one of the only people that have lived it practically because I had some lesbian friends of mine that, were, that did say, I will adopt a child in an overseas institution with very serious special needs. And because I was in the adoption world, I know for a fact that that baby's well, that young girl's profile had been passed over by a lot of Christian heterosexual couples. Mm-hmm. And only this lesbian couple was willing to take her on. And they said, we need help. And I said, I'm going with you, Hmm. right? So Hmm. we went and we did two weeks of grueling adjustment. I mean, it was really one of the hardest two weeks of all of our lives. It was so hard. And they were willing to give the girl what ended up being yearly surgeries for her condition. So, um, yes.
0: There can be situations.
1: Yes, it might be better for a same sex couple or a single to adopt a child who is in need. But that is oftentimes the exception used to say, See, kids don't need mom. Biology doesn't matter, and love makes a family, which is wrong.
0: Right, and that—that's often the argument. Love makes a family, and—and and right. that's what you're saying. Like the—the the biological function, the natural law approach mm-hmm. doesn't suggest. And—and and that, and that's why, it, while the exceptions exist, it should be okay for um, adoption agency to make uh, give clarity to their priorities and to, right. to use that as a <laughs> way to judge.
1: The priority is not giving adults what they want. The priority is the child. Yeah. And sometimes that means standing up to angry lobbies. And you know what? That's what child protection looks like.
0: Wow. Now I'm interested too. You said adoption is not a right. And one thing I found helpful uh, in your book too is the way that you take the discussion of rights and you mm-hmm. kind of simplify it in a way I hadn't heard before. So I think it's really, it's really helpful because, um, you know, we talk sometimes about healthcare as a right, uh, mm-hmm. adoption as a right, but you're, you, you give a, I think it's three examples of what a right is. Could you go over that with us?
1: Yeah, totally. I should probably grab the book to make sure that I get them. Okay. <laughs> exactly. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but really we're trying to say, like everybody's these days, if you really, 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 really want something, adults, especially would be like, it's a right. And so like, we've got like, birth control paid for by the government is a right and housing is a right. And, you know, community college is a right. Right, I mean, like anything that somebody really wants, they think that they will strengthen their argument if they call it a right. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about natural rights, um, we make a distinction between rights and commodities. And, you know, we're not philosophers, Um, My co-author and I are very much like practical application lay people. And so we kind of offered a few little cheats in terms of figuring out what is a natural right. And we believe that natural rights should also be recognized as legal rights. Like that's that's kind of Martin Luther King Jr.'s argument as well. Right. But really, we say you can know a natural right based on three things. Number one, it existed pre-government. Okay. Right? It didn't. It didn't come about because of government. It existed before government. And when you're talking about a child's right to life, obviously. But when you're talking about a child's right to their mother and father, this is as pre as it comes. Like once people started reproducing, whether you believe that was in the Garden of Eden or sometime along the, the monkey chain, um, you know, this this existed way before government did. Number two, um, we say that it doesn't vary in degrees, right? So if it's a dorm room versus Mar-a-Lago, it's a commodity, not a right. Rights are distributed, natural rights are distributed equally. When it comes to our right to life, we all get the same amount, we get one. Hmm. When it comes to our right to our mother and father, um, we all get exactly two, just just one mom and one dad. And this is where I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to get the book, what was the third one?
0: Um, I'm sorry, I don't have it here. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've
1: got, I've got a stack. <laughs> so you should fill the space while I look it up.
0: Okay. So one of the things I encourage people to do is go to them before us. Is it com or org? dot com dot com and so you can check out some of these things and this is really a movement that I I think can help reframe this discussion so when we're in this discussion we can of course and and I'm speaking my audience is primarily coming at this many many people who are pastors many people who are, who are seminary students um come at this from a, a theological perspective and and we we've talked about that many times on this podcast but what we're thinking of is like how do we enter into a public space we 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 enter into that from our worldview. We come in we come in and we don't check that at the door, but at the same time, we can make a persuasive argument that can lead people. And ultimately, like the, the natural law perspective is one that like think if, if people get on that chain, if they're like they they follow one piece, I think that God can use that to help them come to a fuller perspective of the gospel. And this is what we you might know Christopher West. Um oh, yeah. yeah. Um his book is Our Bodies Tell God's it's stories. Underneath. It's underneath my computer, it's,
1: uh... lifting my computer up to this level. So, yes, Christopher West is foundational in a very literal sense for me.
0: So I <laughs> encourage people to go back. I'm going to mention a couple of our, my podcasts, former podcasts to listen to. So Christopher West had his Theology for the B- Body for Beginners, which was published to a Catholic press. Then I think Baker Brazos put it out uh, kind of he did it in. Uh, an evangelical sort of version for it, and I had him on the podcast, and then I also had Janet Dean, Dr. Janet Dean, who has looked at um, the w- way to engage sexual minorities on college campuses, particularly evangelical college campuses, and she talks about um, uh, she t- talks about the even like moving against the therapies, like people who, who don't want there to be conversion therapies and all that, that type of stuff is very interesting. And then, of course, my last one just came out a month or so ago talking about the Salvation Army. And, and, and I'll pull this as kind of a segue to your uh, the third point is the reason it's bad for a, a big chunk of my audience is that they are part of the Salvation Army and they've made a covenant. And in that covenant, they say they believe the scriptures authoritative. They believe in the Trinity, all that kind of stuff. Jesus is going to return. But they also say they will uphold the sanctity of marriage and family life. Upholding and say This is what Katie and I are talking about right now. It's like, how do we uphold family life? And that comes not by prioritizing the needs of the parent, but the child. Good. Okay. Sorry. That was my own Wait, little no. commercial.
1: I just want to be like, amen. Like, you <laughs> just keep going. I'll just sit back. So, first of all, the third thing gotcha. is... Um, Nobody needs to provide it for you. You know that it's a natural right when nobody has to provide it for you, right? Nobody has to provide you your life, right? If you are alive, you have life. Um, If you have to dig it up from the ground, bottle it, label it, ship it, it's not a natural right. If somebody has to construct it, a contract it, and put a roof on it, it's not a natural right. If somebody has to go to twelve years of medical school, right, to so that you can have access to it, it's not a natural right. Okay. So a natural right is something that nobody has to provide for you. And so you look at things like the right to self-defense, you know, bear arms, the right to freedom of speech, to be able to speak, to associate. Nobody has to provide that for you. The government's job is to protect it, not provide it.
0: Okay. Okay. So
1: those are kind of the three ways that we understand help people to understand natural rights. Okay. Now, how do we talk about this in the public sphere, right? Cuz you're you've got people in your audience who are biblical scholars who may know more than I do about some of the, you know, references biblically and so how do we talk about this in the public sphere well there's a section in um chapter four of the book that says isn't this just about your religion because you know everybody says oh isn't this just because you're a fundamentalist backwashed brainwashed bigot you know bible thumper whatever and so um you know we're we actually don't include any scripture in the book at all um but here's the incredible thing is if you are basing your case on natural law um, it will be compatible with biblical law because both of those are grounded in reality, right? So they're not gonna conflict. It's two different ways of looking at the same issue. And when it comes to public policy, we actually encourage Christians not to use scripture. Hmm. Um, we, be- we believe it's detrimental, right? Because scripture is my authority. I-, I carry my Bible with me everywhere I go. I read the Bible with everyone I'm with. Like I'm gonna be on a plane for four hours. There's a real good chance I'll read the Bible with the person next to me. I just read the Bible with everybody that I'm with. But when it comes to discussing public policy, I don't appeal to the Bible because the Bible is my authority, but for the most part, that's not the authority of those I'm speaking with. Um, Their authority is natural law, right? What can be discovered, discovered about humans through the natural world and their authority is our legal structure, our constitution primarily. So Christians, I think, need to become skilled at appealing to the common authority, not our special authority, right? And that's not to diminish the importance of revelation, which right. I think is really important. I think it's the ultimate authority, but we have worked, honestly, we have taken the uh, the easy approach and thought that, well, if I say God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, bam, what a mic drop. Ooh, I just won that argument. No, you didn't. Right. Right. Now they just look at you and say, you really don't have any way to credibly speak into this issue from a perspective that I can recognize and understand. Yeah. So that's why we fill the book. I mean, there's 30 to 80 footnotes in every chapter citing the highest level of um of social science, we pack the chapters with the voices of real life kids who have been, um, who have lived through these modern families so that you can see this is what it really looks like in their life. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about your, um, the Salvation Army's doctrinal commitments to upholding marriage, um, I will tell you this, if you don't, what you're saying is, I value social approval more than I value the lives of children. That's the trade-off that you're gonna make, okay? because God's design for sex and marriage. Yes, it's good for adults, but when you get it wrong, kids will pay the price and they will be the victims right. every single time. So, I understand that there's a lot of churches that are bowing to that pressure. Yeah. You cannot be one of them, especially if you think that, that it is, if you want anything good for kids, you will never compromise on God's design for sex and marriage, no matter what kind of pressure you face, no matter how Whatever the world, whatever terrible names they call you, um, think about God's law for sex. Right? What happens when we have sex before marriage? Yeah. We create children outside of that that sturdy protection of marriage. Okay. Those kids are at disproportionate risk for all those social ills I mentioned at the beginning. Let's say that you're shacking up. Okay. And you're living with the child's biological other parent. That kid is still four times more likely to suffer abuse and neglect and live in poverty. Okay, let's say that you step outside of God's boundary for marriage and you commit adultery. Well, I know I know a few of those couples right now who have come back to Christ, and now they are raising two parallel kids in two different households. And let me tell you, the kid that doesn't live with their dad—that's the one with major psychological issues. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when you step outside of God's design for it being a permanent union, and you think that you can just dissolve it, um, we've got an entire chapter on the psychological outcomes for kids of divorce. And the one that made me have to step away from writing it was that about 50% of kids who live in two different homes develop split personalities. They develop wow. two different personalities. They literally have to become a different person in each household. Right. If you want to reject God's design for it being a male and a female, what you're really saying is... You're endorsing fatherlessness. That's what you're doing. Or you're endorsing motherlessness, which the Old Testament community couldn't even conceive of. A motherless child? Those kids die. Fatherless kids? Yeah, we've seen them. Motherless children? You can't even find the word really motherless in the Old Testament, right? You find the four demographics that are supposed to get special protection being the poor, the widow, the immigrant and the fatherless. Mm. Okay. So if you compromise on God's design for it being male and female in marriage, what you're saying is we endorse fatherlessness. Mm. Okay. So you are not going to be able to support children in any sense of the world if you compromise one iota on God's design for sex and marriage. Yeah. And sorry, you're going to have to choose. Wow. Are you going to choose God's truth, which will support child well being? or will you instead value the tolerance and the acceptance of the
0: progressive world instead? Right. Those are your choices. You can't have both. Them before us, man. That's what this is. Uh, I mean, it, it, we have to come back to that. Now, uh, I liked too, how you're able to come to a place of, of say, in the United States, and our audience is international, and there'll be different parties that are represented, but you're, you're trying to point out how taking this perspective of not taking the... Um, the parents or the adults uh, wishes, well, you know, desire for the for having their own way, their own satisfaction is, the, is part of the problem that, that children need to be the priority. We want to value them ahead of us. Okay. Okay. You're saying though that this is, should align with the values of both major parties in the United States. I, could you outline yep. that?
1: Yeah. So like my friends on the right, and I've got a lot of them. Uh, They want small government. They want government to leave them the heck alone. They want to stop paying for teachers and counselors to have to be parents, right? Which is really what the public education says They want to stop paying for prisons and welfare and all of that. I'm like, okay, then you have to have big marriage, right? If you want small government, you have to have big marriage. marriage. What
0: do you mean by big marriage? I've never heard that term.
1: You've got to have a lot of marriage.
0: Okay. You
1: have have to have a lot of men and women marrying each other before they have kids and staying together the whole time. Okay. You will never have small government personal responsibility or low taxes without big marriage. Okay? Because marriage is the vehicle that protects children's rights. My friends on the left who have amazing tender hearts... For some of the biggest problems we're facing today, my friends on the left are volunteering at, with at-risk kids at school and serving in homeless shelters and, and, and working with kids who have come out of trafficking and um, manning the suicide hotline and all of that. You're never going to see any kind of long-term statistical improvement in any of those causes until you can secure justice for the individual child until you can make sure that they are connected to their mother and father for life wow.
0: that's marriage
1: that's marriage there's no other vehicle of doing that that we have discovered in this lexicon of kind of human you know definitions of how to do this other than marriage so in my opinion children's rights to their mother and father and the institution of marriage should be the thing that we both agree on because nobody gets what they want unless we can do this well
0: Wow, it's hard. It's, it just doesn't seem like that is. I don't hear many politicians on either side addressing this issue. Like um, many people, because of the nature of how like uh, LGBT stuff is out there, uh, Republicans don't really want to touch it. Even if, like at certain times, they might promote family values and say something a little bit here. But then, if if on the Democratic side, if they want to say something about it, unfortunately, like it's going to be the place where they're going to hurt their uh, base, and they have to they have to trust in this. But I, so I don't hear them talking about the need for mothers and fathers together to come together. So I I hope that some of these things that you're promoting can be something that can really take off uh, in the public square.
1: I hope so. It really is uh, critical. I mean, it really just is about what does it mean to be human? These are some of the most fundamental issues, questions that we're facing, you know, and that's why, you know, Robert George um, is such a strong advocate on this because you really can't um, have any other opinion about um, the definition of marriage if you're really serious about human thriving you know anybody that has a lot of close contract, contact with human behavior like you look at jordan peterson yeah jordan peterson's like mm, yeah moms and dads are really important right, right? anybody <laughs> that has that isn't just living in an ideological world somebody that has a lot of contact with reality there's no way to dismiss this
0: right yeah and, and uh, yeah he's been really helpful to me on this as well like uh thinking about what how you set children up to be successful. This is what happens. Okay. Well, one other thing we have, we've touched on just a little bit. And I know we just only have a few, few more minutes, but just, and I'm going to bring up something like this. Uh, when, when a donor don't uh, like sperm donation, I forget what the technical term is that used in in the book. Um, like what, what's the big problem with that?
1: Yeah. So, um, Reproductive technologies. Um, There are so many ways to make babies in laboratories these days. And so um, we tend to focus on the ones that um, separate children from their biological mother, their biological father, or their birth mother. So that's what we call sperm donation, egg donation, and surrogacy. Donation is a laughable term because this is the most lucrative industry um, in the medical world, right? This is all... um, elective. So Mm. it's just money, money, money. Um, And so here's the problem, right? We already know that biology matters to kids. It matters in terms of safety and well-being. It matters in terms of biological identity. Um, And a lot of these kids who are going to be created through sperm and egg donation will be raised without a mother or father in the home, whether that is a single parent or a same-sex situation. But even if they are raised with a loving heterosexual couple, these children still suffer. Mm -hmm. We've been doing sperm donation especially for decades and so we can measure the outcomes on kids. They tend to have more instability in their homes, they tend to have more delinquency, alcohol abuse, substance abuse, they have um, a lot of times struggles trusting the parents who are raising them. A lot of times they don't feel the same connection to their um, non-biologically related parent and overwhelmingly they have a lot of identity issues, a lot of identity struggles. What Adoption professionals used to call genealogical bewilderment this idea of like who am I I, I can't I, I don't know who I am It's really hard for kids even adopted kids like my son to answer that question. Yeah. Who am I when he cannot? Be like I am the biological descendant yeah. of you know, but I can say I'll tell you what baby you're the spiritual descendant, Amen. right? Your great grandparents labored in your land yes. and did not know that they were going to be benefiting um, your people.
0: Yes. And,
1: you know, you are you are reaping um, kind of the spiritual seeds that they sowed so long ago. Yeah. And that's beautiful, but it doesn't compensate for what he's lost. Yes. Right. I can't fully compensate for what he's lost. No matter how much love I give him, there's things that I won't be able to offer, questions I won't be able to answer. Mm -hmm. So as an adoptive mom, I didn't create that wound for him. I'm there to shepherd him through it. Children created through sperm and egg donation are being raised by the people who inflicted their wound. And so they tend to have some serious psychological distress because if they do have questions about their missing biological father and they were to voice that to their single mother by choice. Yeah, They're talking to the woman yeah. who chose for that man to be gone. Wow. So that is why on the one study that we have that measures outcomes of donor conceived children and puts them side by side with adopted children, adopted children fare better, mm. even though they are raised apart from both parents, donor conceived kids tend to be raised by at least one biological parent, but it's that intentional aspect I'm choosing for you not to have a relationship
0: with your dad. I'm choosing for you to be a motherless child. I never thought of that. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Uh, Yeah, we are,
1: we are commodifying children. We are, we are treating them um, as items to be cut and pasted into any and every household arrangement. Yeah. Um, And in the world of reproductive technologies, we are buying them, mm. right? We are purchasing children. It is a marketplace for human beings. You can go you're, right now, right now, just Google sperm donor catalog. You can choose your child out of a catalog. Okay. Wow. This is the Amazon of babies, right? Wow. And so it's not surprising that many of the children created through sperm and egg donation say, It bothers me that money changed hands over my conception. The commodification aspect of this weighs heavily on the products on the children created through these technologies. So we come back to the same conclusion, whether you are talking about people in a struggling marriage, whether you're talking about an incredible woman who's 40, her biological clock is ticking. She hasn't found Mr. Right. She desperately wants to be um, a mom or it's the, the man the the two guys with same-sex attraction or the two men who are in a relationship who would both be great fathers, or you're talking about the heterosexual couple dealing with infertility. In all of these situations, you have longing, you have adult pain and suffering in a lot of these ways. The answer cannot be to force a child to sacrifice for you. Somebody is going to have to do the hard thing, either the adults or the child. And then before us, we think it should be the adults that do the hard thing, not the kids.
0: Amen. It sounds like a very Christian thing, too. If any person would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Um, okay, one last thing, and it's not too deep. Um, this is called the More to the Story podcast. And right. I always ask people, well, when I get a chance to, is um, there more to the story of Katie? Like, what more to the story? Like, uh, uh, do you like to snorkel? What do you, what, what, who knows? Like, something kind of fun.
1: Oh, fun. Everything I'm wearing is secondhand. Okay. I only buy secondhand stuff. Um, it started because we were dirt poor <laughs> for a long time. My husband was a youth pastor on one income and we were raising kids. And um, and so I just gleaned, like I became a gleaner. Okay. Um, so, and even in Seattle, which is really expensive, uh, we've lived really well on one income because um, I just glean, you know, secondhand from friends, from thrift stores. You know, now we're at the place where, Um, you know, I have more of an income. And so we're not that tight, but I'll never be able to shake it. I won't ever be able to shake it. Of $19 for a shirt? You're kidding me. I could could find a ball gown for like, and all the accessories for 19 bucks. So that's probably uh, the funnest fact. Well, this Uh, is
0: why we need to get you more connected to the Salvation Army. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, oh, let's talk about the Salvation Army. (laughs) I was just in their new thrift store in my town. And I was like, damn, you guys have done such a good job. It's not overcrowded. You've got good pricing. Some of these thrift stores, I'm like, I could literally go to Old Navy and buy this cheaper than what you're trying to sell me this t-shirt for right now. So yeah, I'm all about the Salvation Army. I love it.
0: <laughs> That's great. Hey, a little advertisement there. Well, Katie, thank you so much. We, I'm, I'm thankful that God has given you this passion. And, and your husband being able to like embrace this part of like the gifting that you clearly have and the intellectual energy that is so evident. And I, I just pray that your voice will be heard and your tribe will increase.
1: Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, thanks to your listeners for uh, suffering through.
0: Amen. No, it's great. Thank you.